And so, Father, as we come to this text today, teach us. Open up our eyes. Help us learn and grow. Lord, I I pray for uh, your spirit to apply these things to our hearts. Thank you that you hear us and that you know us. And thank you that you've called us even to hear this for such a time as this. And then we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the questions we may ask is, well, you know, why do we spend so much time looking back at these Old Testament stories? What is, the, what is going on here, and what is the intent of Esther? Uh, why should we read it today? Well, Paul anticipated that question even in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. And uh, he is uh, basically saying the whole Old Testament, and certainly the story of the Exodus, and certainly even a story like this, happened for this reason. These things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, I really want us to feel the weight of that today, that Paul knew that he lived in the last days. And if Paul lived in the last days, you live in the last days. And all the things that happened to Esther and the reason that it was written down is written down for your good. It's written down so that you feel the weight of the human responsibility that you and I have to be faithful in these the last days. God is going to use his people to make a difference and to make an impact. And all of Esther exists so that we can see how God has used his people in the past. And we won't have to relearn those lessons in these end times. We're ready. We're ready to learn the lesson. And uh, we can read it by, by reading it and looking at Esther's example rather than by having to kind of make a lot of mistakes uh, along the way, right? Uh, Throughout the book of Esther, there are several themes that we should be aware of, okay? And I want to kind of point those themes out to us. One of the themes of Esther is the absolute sovereignty uh, of God. God works with providence in human history. He's strong. And I want you to know that, and I want you to feel that. A couple of examples would be uh, bringing Esther into Susa, the capital city of the Persians, at just the right moment. Uh, having her raised in the way that she was raised so that she would be ready to go to the, the, the palace at just the right moment. Disrupting the king's sleep so that he would literally have insomnia and be thinking through how he could honor Mordecai at one point. And then bringing Haman into the king's presence on the heels of that. We could go point by point through the book and see all of the ways that God is providential over the affairs of the Jewish people. The second theme throughout the whole book is really human responsibility. And and that is the thrust of the passage today. Now look, obviously we believe that Jesus has completed our salvation. We believe in unmerited favor and grace from God. We believe that we don't contribute to the saving work of Jesus. 
But by the same token, when the Spirit lives in you, when the Spirit lives in me, we are required to act faithfully all the days of our life. And here, Esther and Mordecai are in a situation where they know that God is going to be ultimately faithful and they know that God is ultimately providential, but they have to do something right now or millions of people will die. And and guys, in the last days, you and I need to be active. You and I need to understand that God, while he is providential, he also uses people and he wants to use you in these last days. I want you to You're kind of getting up in your face, and I want you to look in the mirror this afternoon and be reminded that God's means of work in this world, while there is some mysteriousness and there is some work of the Spirit and there is absolute providence, He is also going to use that person staring back at you in the mirror this afternoon to accomplish His work. And that's where Esther and Mordecai are. And then the last theme of this book is really how absurd it is to live a wicked life. It it is absurd to turn your back on God and live how you want to live. Let me just take a moment and say, I know we all struggle with the temptation to do that from time to time. But to turn your back and go your own way, knowing that God is God, is absurd. And young people in here, I want you to hear that. That's an absurd way to live your life. So a couple of quick examples would be Mordecai. Here he's numbered among the people of, you know, God's people. And at one point uh, he says to Esther, hey, look, I don't know how God's going to do this, but I know this. He's going to be faithful and he is going to act on behalf of his people. He's going to save his people. You seem to be... uh, put in such a place that he could really use you, but if you refuse to act in this moment, that's okay. God's going to do something great and save his people anyway. And it's almost as if Mordecai is saying, well, you could be the one if you are bold enough, if you are ready, if you're courageous in this moment. And by the way, all that took place in uh, uh, Esther 4.14, where Mordecai says, I don't know how God's going to save his people, but I know he's going to save his people. So God's people know that he's strong, But people who reject God know that he is strong, and it is absurd to oppose him. In uh, Esther chapter 6 and verse 13, Haman has just come from a situation. If you remember, he goes into the king, and uh, he thinks that the king is going to honor him. So he says the king should do all these great things for the one he wants to honor. Well, remember this. It turns out the king wanted to honor the Jew Mordecai. And so Haman, wanting to put Mordecai to death, is told, I want you instead to take Mordecai around the city while he's honored and have a big parade in his honor. And Mordecai goes home from that, and he can't believe it, and he's upset, and he's telling his family how horrible his day was that he had to go out and honor this Jew, Mordecai. Verse 13 of chapter 6. We're talking about how even the enemies of God know that it's absurd to oppose God. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men, stop there, these are the wise men of Persia. They will appear again. They will appear again 
as the star leads them to search for the baby Jesus. Wise men still seek him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, here these people are who oppose God. If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. But you will surely fall before him. And so even fair-minded opponents of God know that it is folly and absurd to oppose him. So my friends, I'm here to tell you as we open Esther here, we're in the end days. God is providential. It is absurd to oppose him. And he is going to use your faithful actions to bring hope to the nations. That's where we're at as we start our story today. Okay? So Esther, chapter 8, verse 3. Here we go. Then Esther spoke again to the king. And I want to point up to you the timing first. So here, uh, you know, Esther could have been tempted to start to celebrate. Because if you look back at verse 2 and 1, more, uh, excuse me, Haman, the enemy, has just been put to death. And what do you do when, you're, when your sworn enemy is put to death? Well, you, you could celebrate. You could think, that's it. This is it. We, we, we are in a situation where it's obvious that God is going to win this thing. But keep in mind that Haman has also stirred up hatred throughout the whole country. 127 provinces of people have read the edict of hatred for the Jews and have been stirred up. And so though Haman is off the scene, his influence is on the scene. And Esther and Mordecai know it's not time to celebrate yet. Listen, the enemy of the happy ending is the premature celebration. And it's not time to celebrate yet. Listen, Esther and Mordecai know it's too early to celebrate. And it is poss- it's true that, that uh, good old Haman is off the scene, but his influence is still intact, and they have to do something. So then, the first word, the timing, feel the timing of this. Esther goes in, and she wants to talk to the king. And she has a, a moment with him. So uh, here we go. While Esther waited until the time was right to answer the king, she wasted no time once she knew she had the king's heart. So keep this in mind. Here's like a, there's like an 11-month span that has taken place. Remember, this whole book is telling us about the Feast of Purim. The word pure from Purim is the word where we get our, our term lots. Lots. So Haman brings together a group of people and casts lots and said, when should we put the Jews to death? And the lots told him, 11 months down the road. So these lots and Haman's wickedness and his desire gave 11 months of dread throughout the land. Well, uh, two months later, Haman is hung on a gallows that he made to put to death the first Jew. And so he is taken off the scene. He is dead. And right now, we have, God has a way, by the way, of punishing the unjust, of working justice for the rebel, even while he works 
mercy for the faithful. And that's exactly what was happening there, okay? And so, and so now we are eight months away from this, this Feast of Purim, the eventual Feast of Purim, or the day when the lives of the uh, Jews is in danger. We're eight months out, and yet Esther wastes no time. So as God is completing this epic turnaround, note the perseverance of his servants. She is persevering. She is not letting up on the gas because she has not yet crossed the finish line. She knows there is still work to do before the, the game is won. So how do I know when I should move ahead? How do I ascertain the, the timing issue when I'm making a request of someone else? Esther knew that the time was of the essence, and she knew she had gone through a whole sifting process in her life. She had gone through this sifting process where she had to determine, when am I going to identify myself publicly as a Jew? When am I going to show my true colors? She had to also work on, what is my role as a Jew in the palace in this moment? So she had come to kind of process all that, and now she was emboldened, okay? So her desires are shaped by the Word of God. Friends, if your desires are shaped by the Word of God, uh, God may be opening a door, timing-wise, for you to walk through. Note the the timing uh, in terms of the purity of her motives. Whereas earlier she had struggled, and she had... She had, uh, I'll just tell you straight up, when she was a younger girl in the palace, there wasn't seemingly a lot of difference between her and the other girls in the harem. And without casting any stones, isn't that how we all start out? There's, There's not a huge difference. We haven't yet grown into understanding what it means for God to be Lord of our lives. And, and so early on, she had motives for herself. And as she grew and she began to understand and she took the coaching of Mordecai, she began to understand that maybe she was in the palace as a Jew for such time as this. And so her motives are sifted through and purified. And so she realizes the timing is of the essence. And then when God has give you, given you the heart of the one that you're asking for. So guys, timing is crucial in how we ask or when we ask. And again, uh, right here, Esther knows that the victory is not in the bag yet. She still has work to do. She has to find a way to put to rest the unrest, to put to rest the, uh, the evil and the hatred of those that Haman had stirred up. Well, as God completes the epic turnaround, there's, there's more about this perseverance that we see. Check out the relationship. Because in verse 3 it says this, Then Esther spoke again to the king. I imagine that Esther and Mordecai got together and said, okay, Mordecai, you have the signet ring of the king. You have the official power of the state to enact laws. Maybe you should ask the king what we should do next. And then I can imagine Mordecai looking Esther in the face and saying, okay, sweetheart, because that's how you talk to your adopted daughter. Uh, You have the relationship with the king. So maybe you should be the one who makes this request. And so they go in, and we're going to see in a moment that they are together before the king, 
even though the story starts focused on, on Esther. And so note this, there's a power in collaboration. There's a power in talking these things through and coming together and getting advice from others and laying your desires before the other one and hearing from them what they honestly believe should be done in the situation. This collaboration, we are better together. So this is a planned and strategic decision. Do not assume that because you have position that you have the power. Dad, you might not. But boss, you're a boss at work. Maybe you think, well, I've got the position, I've got the power. Maybe, maybe not. You might be really smart to look around at who could best broach the topic. And maybe the best person to broach the topic is not the one with the quote-unquote authority. It's the one with the relationship. And so that's where we are as Mordecai and Esther come before the king. And Mordecai obviously had said to Esther, I think you should ask him. I think you have the influence that we're looking for. For Mordecai, it was too soon. He had the ring for like 12 hours. And so he just did not feel like he had the relationship to make this request. And even if you have a formal position, consider how you might make that request in a relational way. So look, I've just told you that I think, and I really believe this, collaboration is is a powerful thing. But there are some people in here today, and I know all of us struggle with this from time to time, who think or feel like we're completely alone. Well, I would collaborate, but there's no one there for me. I'm alone. And then we start going down this road. No one understands the pain that I'm in. No one understands the situation that I find myself in. And we let ourselves be isolated by feelings. Because, of course, When we really examine what it means to be alone, we're not alone at all. Young mom, you're not alone. You may be exhausted. You may cry yourself to sleep some some nights at 3.30 in the morning. But you're not alone. Person struggling with the health situation that has come upon you and you did not ask for it and you do not know what to do with it and you aren't sure what to do next, can I just tell you? Don't let that diagnosis make you believe for even a second that you're alone. Because you're not alone. Esther could have pulled a lot of things out of her bag and said, this isolates me. I'm an orphan. Both of my parents passed away, and I was raised by my cousin who adopted me. I am alone. No one knows what that feels like. And if she had believed that and said that, you know what she would have done? She would have isolated herself from God's people, from the Jews. She wouldn't have acted with with courage. She wouldn't have acted with decisiveness and strength. She would have backed off. In fact, that's what she was about to do when Mordecai said, hey, maybe you're in the palace for this day, for such time as this. 
Maybe all the stuff that took place to you and all the stuff that makes you feel unique and all the stuff that makes you feel alone and all the stuff that would seemingly isolate you if you just went by feelings. Maybe all that stuff exists so that in these last days you will be faithful in such a way that the gospel goes forth with power. And Esther comes before the king weeping, weeping, but faithful. Don't let yourself feel isolated to the point that you get uh, paralyzed with your life. Esther was not only uh, orphaned as a young girl and raised by her uncle, she was uh, cut off from all the people. She was cut off from all the people of God. She did not have a Jewish connection other than Mordecai. Very little connection with the Jewish people. And it is so easy for us to, to say, you know, oh, the people of God or the church or the, the Jews or the people that I, I should be in community with, I'm just, I'm really, I'm not feeling it, you know. They're, I, I don't know if I should really put my life on the line for them. I'm not feeling the love from them. Maybe you've been in that situation too. We all have. Don't you love that Esther doesn't play that game? Esther says, you know, at the end of the day, in fact, when she was younger and figuring out her identity and figuring out who she was, she was supposed to be and who, who she was going to be, I believe she struggled with some of those questions. But in the last couple of chapters, she is finally coming strong into her identity. If you look in chapter 7, which we looked at last week, he is, she has finally told the king, after Mordecai rightly, for a while, told her to conceal her identity, in chapter 7, Esther finally says to the king, I am a Jew. These are my people. These are my kindred. And once she settled that in her heart, I believe the rest of Esther's whole life came into view with regard to who she was going to be and what she should do with her life. It all became clear. She wasn't an orphan first. That, she had to deal with that, and that was a part of her story, yes. She wasn't a, a girl in the harem first. She had to deal with that, and that was all a part of the story, yes. She wasn't a Jew cut off from the real Jews because she lived in the palace in Susa, the citadel, the capital city. She had to deal with all that, a lonely, lonely Jew. And yet at the end of the day, when she finally steps into her identity, she says, you know what? My whole world is defined by this. I am of the people of God. I want to be faithful to God himself, and I'm going to walk with him and operate in his principles and for his glory for the rest of my life. How are you doing with identity? Coming to the point where you don't identify all the things that make your story unique to the point that you isolate yourself and then wonder, why is no one helping me? God will help you. God will help you. And Esther came to the point where she said, you know what? I'm not going to let this feeling of being alone lie to me anymore. Esther was not alone, and neither are you. Well, look, that she continues on, not only with this relationship and collaboration, she continues with this emotion as well. It is good and right to let the emotions come at the right time. And if you'll notice, all throughout the book of Esther, 
Esther has been kind of concealing her emotions. You know, early on, she wasn't really telling anyone who she was, and, and then later on, she, she uh, finally comes to the point where the emotions start to show, but at first, she, she, uh, she has these uh, meals for the king, and the, the king comes in, what do you want? What do you want? What's your request? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Come back tomorrow. Okay, I'll come back tomorrow. And she's concealing, and she's concealing. Well, in the last episode that we just saw in chapter 7, again, she has finally come out with some emotion when she said, okay, king, you want to know what my request is? The evil Haman is, a, is amidst, in our midst, and he needs to be destroyed. And she finally has shown some emotion. And now here in chapter 8, she continues with this emotion, and she is holding the king's feet. Notice that when she came before the king the first time, she comes officially, she stands, she waits for him to take the scepter, she touches the scepter, she moves to the side, she makes a request, she walks out. Right? It's all very official. But look in this, in this situation. Before he holds out his scepter, she's weeping at his feet. Oh, king, help me. Because this game isn't won yet. We got miles to go. And I am putting my human effort, I'm putting my will to make a difference, to save the people around me. I am going to make a difference. And so here she is weeping at the king's feet. When those around us do not know all the facts, by the way, the king didn't know she was a Jew until she revealed it recently. They were married. He didn't know she was a Jew. When those around us do not all know all the facts, they cannot understand our emotions. And that's right. Right? Because then as we reveal our heart to them, then they can understand our emotions. And so what we need to do is understand that if we're all emotion all the time, people, we're going to get misunderstood. And if we conceal ourselves all the time, people aren't going to have any hooks to hang our emotions on. So what we need to do is really reveal ourselves to one another. And as we reveal ourselves to one another, the emotion comes with it. And we have this kind of equal revelation, self-revelation with with the emotions. And so here Esther has now finally come clean and told her story, and now she feels that she can come out with the emotions, and the king is understanding now where she's coming from. So as God's completing this epic turnaround, this self-revelation to one another is important. And so here Esther makes a huge request. Here's what I want you to do, king, verse 5. Esther rose and stood before the king and said, if it please the king, and she goes through and says, look, if this is a morally good thing, I want you to, and we come to the end, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. Now, Esther, I mean, it's like a miracle. That would be a miracle. The law of the Medes and Persians is that when a king makes an edict or declares an edict, that it can't be changed. It's not going to get changed. And so Esther just thinks, well, okay, king, here I am. I've asked for a big thing already. I'm going to ask for another big thing. We've got eight months before the D-Day comes. How about if you just totally revoke this edict that's gone out in in your name? And she even tells him how to do it in saving face. Blame Haman. Blame Haman and say, look, Haman's dead now. Let's let's repeal this edict. Let's just move on from this, right? She asked for a miracle. 
Um, the king, well, let's look what the king does. First of all, in verse 6, Esther says this, and so again, she's still at the emotion, she's still at the emotional level. How can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And here's what she's saying, if my people are killed, my life will be over. That's what she, when she says, if I, how can I bear? She's implying that if the people die, she will die. That's how closely her heart is connected with these people. The king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they hanged him in the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. Uh, But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews. And here's basically what he says. Look, I'm washing my hands of this whole thing. I've done enough. You have the signet ring. Here's what I want you to know. The edict is in force, and we can't repeal it. We can't revoke it. And I've done enough. Uh, You guys, if you want to get together and write a new edict, feel free. You've got the ring, but I'm out. I'm out. So he washes his hands of the whole thing and moves away. So let me me put this back in context. Esther asks for a miracle, and I am confident that she prayed about it first, and she is told no. No. I know it makes sense to you that that would be the next thing. I know that God has already begun a rescue process here where Haman is dead, but no, we're not doing that. What do you do when the miracle you asked for gets shot down? Boy, you might have it in mind exactly what God should do next in your life. And Esther did. She brought this desire before the king, and the king says, no, no. And can I just encourage you? It's wisdom you need to proceed with. You may not get your miracle. And when you do not get your miracle, proceed with wisdom. It's exactly what Esther and Mordecai do here. Let me say this as well. When you do not get your miracle, proceed without bitterness. Because Esther and Mordecai look at each other, collaborate again, and say, okay, let's move ahead. Here we go. So with, uh, so. As God completes this epic turnaround, we see that, he, that his servants here are absolutely persevering, and they know that what they do matters and is going to count. And so here we come to the second point that I want to make today. As God completes this epic turnaround, check out the wisdom shown by his servants. So again, they're still collaborating, and here Esther and Mordecai are together in verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned. And we don't have a lot of time here, so I'm just going to tell you the story rather quickly. Basically, they write a new edict that, that pretty much parallels the old edict. And if you and I read the edict, we think, oh my goodness, how could the people of God write an edict like this? I mean, so uh, it says that they have the right to gather. The Jewish people will have the right to gather. They have the right to defend themselves. And uh, they have the right to destroy and to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province. That's big. And they have the right to destroy man, woman, or child. And they have the right to plunder their goods. And so this is the ethical question of the day. Does God orchestrate, does he endorse destruction? like this. 
And we're going to see in chapter 9, of course, that he does not. He does not. In fact, the net result of this whole story is not that so many people are put to death. Uh, Many lives are spared. And then we see the net result of this is actually that people come to identify themselves as Jews because they fear the Lord and all of that through this situation. So more people are saved, not destroyed, as a result of this edict. So what happens? Over the course of eight months, the word goes out through all out Persia, 127 provinces, from India all the way to Africa. And as the word goes out for eight months, people are hearing, okay, they have the right now to gather themselves together, to arm themselves, and to defend themselves. And so the people who were sort of marginally like, yeah, I think I, I'll participate with Haman. I hate the Jews too. Those people, a lot of those people are like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is going to be a war. This isn't just like some kind of putting to death kind of thing. And so the, the writing of the edict was wise in the sense that they had the quote-unquote right to do a lot of things. But listen, just because it's legal, that doesn't make it right. The law of our land is continuing to legalize many things that aren't right. And the people of God need to ascertain and understand where it doesn't matter what the law says, what matters is what God says, right? And so we're going to find out next week. I'm going to give you just a taste of it, and we're going to move on. Here's the taste. Uh, no women or children are killed, or plund- and there's no plundering. There's no taking of goods. And so what do the Jews do? They get together, they arm themselves, they operate in self-defense, and then they go home. Okay? So uh, bottom line is no, uh, this ethical situation. But wisdom is shown because the way that the, uh, the, way that the edict is written gives them uh, the right to defend themselves. Lastly, verses 15 through 17. As God completes an epic turnaround, note the joy because of his servants, because of his people, okay? 15, then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white. Now, I don't know why, but this this whole story, Esther is focused on the horses. The horses are always around. They're they're charging people around on the horses. We found out here in chapter 8 that the horses that they used were of the, the king's stud. I don't know why we need to know that, but we find out about the horses. So if you have a horse lover in your life, bring him to Esther. We also find out a lot about Mordecai's clothes. I, I don't care about Mordecai's clothes. Why are we so obsessed with Mordecai's clothes? He goes and changes at one point. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He comes to the king's gate and he's weeping because this edict has gone out. So he's tearing his clothes and he's weeping. Esther doesn't like his clothes. So Esther sends him a new bunch of clothes. Hey, put these clothes on. Those clothes stink. He's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm making a point here, right? So he stays with his old sackcloth and ashes. Well, here we go. Haman wants all the honor. Haman wants to be seen. Haman wants to be carted around the, the city with beautiful clothes. And now we see in the ultimate turning of tables... Mordecai comes out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, and again, God turns the tables. With a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and with the installation of this edict, they had crossed the finish line and won the race. They had a right to defend themselves. And so 
Mordecai is a picture of uh, that turn around. We're going to find out next week what happens on the date of Purim, but can I just kind of give you a quick little history lesson? Mordecai, excuse me, Haman hates the Jews, takes the lots, and with the lots chooses a date. And uh, joy because of his ser- servants, and I want to just say that, that lots of good news goes out as God turns the tables on wicked plots. And I use the word lots there because of Purim. Okay? So, so he had chosen the date, God turned the table, and on the very day that the evil one had chosen to take the lives of the Jews, on that day, God delivers them with strength. Rather than being a day that snuffs out the line of the Jews, rather than being a day when God's promises cannot go forth anymore to provide from the Jewish people a seed that would take away the sins of the world, rather than Haman being in a position of honor and victory, on that day, every rebellion is put down. Not only are the Jews Uh, taken care of and preserved, but many people who are not Jewish see the power and strength of God in that day, leave their way of life, and come to identify themselves with the Jewish people and say, I fear your God too. And what the evil one means for evil, God turns the tables on, providing Purim. And to this day, every year, the Jewish people, it's one of the most joyous celebrations, and they laugh, and they have fun, and they are reminded that here in the original plot in Esther, and also when, when Hitler tried to take them out, and by the way, Christian, when Satan thought on that dark day that he was going to win a victory by taking the life of Jesus Christ, and that he was going to snuff out the hopes of all the people. He was going to end the hope of a faithful God. He was going to take away the promise that God meant for good. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, and light came. And it's almost like we could read verse 16, and the Christians had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever, The story of the resurrected Jesus Christ is told. There was gladness and joy among all peoples for a feast and a holiday. And many people from the countries around them declare themselves to be Christ followers because on the third day, Jesus rises from the dead. And what Satan means for evil, God always turns to good. And so my friend, as we consider these last days, you're in them. We consider the providence of God, which is strong and powerful. But today we consider the human responsibility. You. And what God is calling you to do, because though the, the ultimate victory is won, the days of your life, it's not time to celebrate the victory just yet. You've got some miles to go. Keep your eyes on the finish line. Keep your effort intact. As you go before the king, if you have to weep, weep. But weep faithfully. Weep faithfully. Knowing that God is strong. God is strong. And that it is absurd to turn your back on God. 
The people of God know that that's absurd. And the people who are the enemy of God know that that's absurd. So keep your eyes fixed on the one who has won the victory. Let's be dismissed. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, Satan's plans come to nothing, but we must endure them. With no visible resources whatsoever, you provide victory. And Lord, with no visible resources, you will ultimately win the day. We live in these last days, and we are not phoning it in. Lord, we refuse to be people that sit back and just just emphasize that God is providential because we know that you're going to use the behavior, the activity, the love, the initiation of your people to be light and life and hope and victory in these last days. We will not bow to fear. And so, Lord, for that one who who is facing treachery, hardship, who doesn't feel like they have the strength to take the next step today, I pray that they would be encouraged by your word today and that your spirit would teach us. Pray that many will hear of the situation that we are facing that seems dark and painful and that they will actually come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the pain and because of the way that you turn the tables. Dismiss us with your, with your uh, blessing today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.